Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation chapter 17 is where we're at this morning. We are going to talk about a woman uh, who ends up going by the name of Babylon. And I have to warn you up front, uh, I gotta be teachy before I can be preachy this morning. Uh, we are going to go into some relatively deep waters where you're going to have a seminary level prophecy class just because the text is exactly that. And your head may explode a time or two. It'll spin a little bit, uh, but bear with me. We're gonna, we're gonna make progress. I think when we get to the end, uh, it'll make sense. You may have more questions and answers at first, but as we move along, it will unfold. And when we get to the end, I think that it'll crystallize and that there'll be a lot for you to take home, but you're gonna have to hang with me, okay? So let's begin to understand the beginning really of this story of Babylon. This is chapter 17 and 18 together. And we're introduced in chapter number 17 and to what I'll just call Babylon's character. So look in verse number one. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. This is from the previous chapter. There were seven angels with seven vials of wrath and they poured them out on the earth, right? And one of them talked with me. Which one is it? I don't know. Angel with vial one, angel with vial six, who knows? But he talked with me and he said, hey, come here, come hither. I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Now, I don't know if you've been reading ahead in Revelation and if you fully anticipated what was going to come in verse one, but if you haven't been reading ahead, you may be a little surprised. <laughs> like, where are we going with this, right? Like, that's not a verse that you memorized at VBS or in Awana as a kid, right? Like I've seen a lot of verses on coffee mugs and t-shirts. I've never seen that one. <laughs> what, are we, what are we talking about? And I will say up front, uh, when, when this was translated, if you used prostitute or harlot or whore, those were probably equally punchy. I do understand in our day and age uh, that those aren't really equally punchy and I'll probably use the term prostitute more than anything else. Uh, but it tells us that here's, Here's the judgment of this woman. It says she sits on many waters. Now, verse 15 will tell you what that means. If you just scan down a bit, the angel says, the waters which you saw where uh, the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Meaning she touches every part of the globe. Like her reach is extremely extensive. It kind of tips your, your hand to the idea that this isn't just one individual woman that we're talking about. This is going to be symbolic of someone or something bigger and grander that's touching every corner of the globe. And verse two kind of doubles down on this idea when it says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Meaning, small and great have been seduced by her. It seems as though the whole world is intoxicated by her. She is everywhere. She has tricks up her sleeve and she knows what she's doing. 
She is very effective and she is very extensive. And you immediately know this is a woman whose character is not a character that you would want to have. She is immoral. She is unrighteous. She is a seducer. She is very similar to the Proverbs 7 strange woman, if you remember that episode. Right, this woman who comes along to this very simple, naive young man, and, and she begins to play him like a puppet master. And Proverbs 7 will tell you that this woman, with her much fair speech, causes this one to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she forces him, and he goes after her straightway. Just like an ox goes to the slaughter or a fool to the correction of stocks till a dart strikes through his liver. And I love this phraseology, like a bird that hastes to the snare, that goes quickly into the snare and pursues it, but knows not that it's for his life. Like here is this woman that is going to destroy him, but he's oblivious. And this is kind of the idea of this, this seductress, this temptress, this woman that is here introduced to us in the beginning of Proverbs chapter number 17. But it starts to tell you and describe more about who this is. And you start to see her conduct. Look first at verse three, she's powerful. So the angel carried me away into the spirit, into the, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit on a scarlet colored beast, a red colored beast, and the beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. Now, before your head explodes, we'll get to what that all means in a minute. I'm just gonna leave it be for, for a moment and suffice it to say this. If this woman has saddled up this beast, she's powerful. This is not a beast that anyone can tame. As a matter of fact, almost no one can tame. And the fact that she is able to ride on this beast suggests, yes, that she's dependent upon the beast to some degree, but also that she's controlling the beast and that there is a lot of power that marks this, this woman. You also see verse four, that she's very prosperous. It says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand. All right, so while she is a prostitute and she may not be dressed with clothes that people would consider church-going clothes, she is not dressed like a pauper. This is not a cheap outfit, right? She's not Fatine the mother from Les Mis, who was a prostitute because she's destitute and she sold all of her hair and given all of her teeth and she has no other options. That's not this woman. This woman is, she has money, she has jewelry, she has the nicest clothes that you can possibly buy. She is dressed to impress. You would gawk, you would stare. We could say it this way, she's fine. She is, she is wanting you to look and to gawk at her. If I could give you the, uh, the Mark Likens Western PA translation, if she was an F-150, she's not the base version, right? She's a King Ranch with that chrome package. That's who she is. She's decked out. Like she has, she has a lot going for her. She has money. It goes on to say that she's also though very perverse because it tells you that this golden cup that she had was filled with not Kool-Aid, but the abominations of the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead, there was a name written. And here's her name. It's a long name. Mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
Now just imagine meeting her at like a business meet and greet where you have to wear those name tags. My name is, what a, you know the white ones where you sharpie in? My name is Mystery Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots, an abomination. Like too much information, lady, right? Like that's a, that's a lot. But this is her name and this is actually very telling. This is very helpful. So her name is, she's mysterious, yes, but Babylon the Great. Babylon was a place, a literal place. Babylon is also kind of a code word that historically and biblically had stood for false religion. It would be very similar to how we would say Wall Street. Wall Street is a place, but Wall Street stands for the economic system or the stock market, right? Or we would say Madison Avenue, that's a place, but Madison Avenue means the, the system of merchandising and marketing, right? It stands for something grander. The Babylon was a place, but this stands for something a bit grander and really was oftentimes synonymous with uh, spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery, uh, spiritual apostasy. And when it goes on to tell you that she is the prostitute or the mother of harlots, that too is very telling because the prophets oftentimes would go to these nations or kingdoms that had uh, false religions and idolatry. They would even go to Israel at times and they would point their finger at them and they would tell them that your false religion is tantamount to spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication and spiritual prostitution. Those are the words they would use. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah used almost exactly those words and I'm paraphrasing Jeremiah, but he pointed his finger at Babylon. And he said, Babylon, what you're doing religiously causes people to move their affection away from God. And this is spiritual prostitution. You can't do this. And when it says the mother of harlots, that's even telling because really the idea of, of spiritual apostasy has its roots in Babel, which becomes Babylon, which is in Genesis and the, and the whole story of the Tower of Babel, which they want to build this tower and they want to get to God by their own works and God comes and he disrupts it all. But it's this whole episode on people trying to get to God by their own human effort and God saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. And that is kind of the genesis of spiritual adultery. And this kind of all tips its, its hand to that reality that when you're talking about Babylon, you are talking about a city and people do speculate, where will this city be in the future? And, and is it Rome or is it actual Babylon or is it this or is it that? And I don't have much time for that today, but it is talking about something bigger and grander. It's a system of religion that is built upon power and money and control and wanting to have opulence and wanting to, to, to be in charge. And that shouldn't surprise us. Like even the church is warned against this, right? Where Peter writes to the pastors and he's like, hey, pastors, lead the flock, pastor them, but don't do it by constraint, willingly. Don't twist their arm behind their back and make this a power struggle. This isn't a power play when you're pastoring. And don't do it for filthy lucre. Don't do it for money, right? What was Peter saying? Peter was recognizing the reality that has always been of religion, 
that religion tends to move in the direction of a power play and a money grab and wanting to be in control and religious systems, whether they be a particular religion or denomination or even churches, oftentimes they move in that direction. Pastors can move in that direction. And this is saying that there is, there is religious idolatry that is pervasive and she, she knows what she's doing. She is finely tuned. She is seductive. She will use power she will use money, she will use comfort, she will use control, and she will use this to suck you in. This is the prostitute that is all over the kings and the inhabitants of the earth, all the nations and tongues and multitudes. She's all over the place. This is Babylon. And it goes on to say that there's also persecutions, verse six. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus meaning she's at least in agreement with the death of the saints, but likely she had a hand in it. That false religion has turned against those who truly want to worship God. And this is Babylon. Some total is she is lewd, but she is enticing. She is immoral, but she is tempting. She has systems that she has used, and this is the finest that man can build spiritually in their rebellion against God. And all the opulence and all the sex and all the power draws people in. And that's meant to be a warning. We'll get to more as, as we move through the chapter, but let's just stop here for a moment. Understand that's meant to be a warning. And if there was ever something that should serve as a warning to the American church, I dare say this is a good place to start. Because as Americans, what are we tempted by over and over and over? People, oftentimes even under the guise of, of religiosity, trying to seduce you and get you in. Come here. I got a good time for you. I got some money for you. I do it this way and it'll all work out great and you'll be rich. Do all of that is, is there religiously, not just religiously, just in our culture. Flicker through social media and what will you find? Money, how to get it. Listen to me. You can have more money. Look at my money. Hey, sex, do it your way. Don't let anyone tell you. Don't let them box you in. Express yourself. Hey, control, control over yourself specifically, autonomy and independence. You live your best life. That's all over the place. What is that? That is the system of Babylon, more or less. That is you Attempting to be seduced by the world. And if you're, if you're not careful, you will be sucked into that. Don't read this text strictly as future and think that you're neutral and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you. That there is a seductress who is good at her job who will gladly and willingly suck you in and you had better have your head on a swivel. This is Babylon and who she is. And John's reaction to this high-end prostitute riding a red beast with seven heads and 10 horns is a reaction that I am very thankful for because it comforts me. His reaction at the end of verse six is, I wondered with great admiration. Literally, it's the, it's the same word twice. I wondered with wonder. What it's saying is his draw, his jaw hit the floor a bit and he is astonished. He is probably even a little confused 
And it helps me because it tells me if I have no idea what's going on in the first six verses and I read this description, I'm like, huh? Like John was like, huh? He didn't know. And the angel's gonna help him here in verse number seven. But John's basically like, what in the world is going on? Like, I'm, I'm, I, something's happening here, but I don't know how to put all these pieces together. And I'm, I'm a little bit confused. So take heart, if that's you, John was there as well. In verse number seven, the angel's gonna help him. But let me pause for just a moment. If you're new to church in general, or even if you're new to this church, and we're preaching through Revelation verse by verse, uh, you may be thinking like, this is the stuff that cults are made of, right? Like, this is what my mom warned me about. Like, this is, this is nuts. This, this prostitute riding a beast sort of thing. Like, like, what is going on here? And I want you to know that this is imagery. This is symbolism. And the imagery has, we'll see in a minute, clear uh, explanations. What do the waters mean? What do the horns mean? What, it'll all be explained in a minute. But I want you to know that imagery serves a deeper purpose than just explaining things, but it actually accomplishes something. I found this quote interesting from Daryl Johnson when he wrote about uh, revelation and prophecy and, and why does revelation in particular use so much imagery? Why does it use this like, you know, this this dragon was trying to eat the woman and her baby. Why can't it just be like, the devil is out to get the, God's people, you know? Why does it use this stuff? And here's what he says. Imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. This is something that, that's meant to, to cause you to stop, to wonder, to even hook you into the story when you're like this high-end prostitute rides a, rides a seven-headed beast who eventually eats her, you know? If you're like, it eats her? It, wait, it's coming. Yes, it actually does. It turns on her. But all of this is meant to communicate something, and here's what it communicates. Verse number seven, the angel said unto me, wherefore didst thou marvel? hey, you're over here like, what in the world's going on? Well, I'm gonna tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which has seven heads and 10 horns. All right, I'm down with that. You're gonna tell me the mystery. You're gonna help me you know, understand this. Who is this beast and why does it have seven heads? All that sort of stuff. And what you'll find simply is that you'll find the beast and you'll find the woman explained. And the beast is going to be uh, the antichrist and, and maybe more specifically, the system that is there in the world politically that's dominated by the Antichrist. And here's what it says, verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Right, stop. Here is the origin of said beast comes out of bottomless pit. We have seen this phrase multiple times in Revelation already, and we've already established that is where the devil and his minions and his cohort comes from, right? Simply put, this is satanic in origin. The devil is his daddy. This is not something that is of God. There's, there are ill motives here, right? Out of the bottomless pit. And one day the destination will be perdition or destruction. So satanic in origin, but headed for destruction. And the beast was and is not. What do you mean was and is not? Well, more to come on that in a minute. Here's what it says, middle of verse eight. They that dwell on the earth shall wonder 
The ones whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world wonder, meaning they are, they are uh, awestruck by this. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. You say, okay, that's the angel's explanation and that doesn't help me very much. <laughs> like, I'm glad he explained it, but you need to explain the explaining, okay? If you remember in chapter 13 of Revelation, we were introduced to the beast. The beast who had the devil as his daddy, who had, you guessed it, seven heads and 10 horns. Same one, same one. And we were even introduced to this concept that he would be, but not be, but then would be again. When we were told in very clear, plain language that he would be alive and ruling and would have a wound a wound as it were unto death. He was living and then it looks like he's dead and then he would come back to life and there would be this counterfeit resurrection and it would cause the people of the world to wonder and to marvel and to hitch their wagon to him, right? This is recapitulating the same idea. It's telling you the same thing, same beast, same idea, was, is, not, is again, it goes on to say in verse number nine, here's the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. More to come on that in a minute. Verse 10, they are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So let's explain. I told you we had to be more teaching. I warned you up front. Here are the seven heads. Okay, angel, what are the seven heads? Well, there's seven mountains, but wait, they're not just seven mountains, they're seven kings, okay? There's seven mountains and seven kings. And out of the seven, five were, past tense, one is now, one will be. Now, there, I will admit, there is debate on this. There, there's many people that have many different perspectives, but the two primary perspectives is that this is talking about the Roman Empire strictly and exclusively. Rome was a city that had seven mountains surrounding it. It sits on seven mountains. Maybe it's talking about Rome. Maybe these seven kings are talking about Roman emperors that went one after the other. It can get a little tricky to try to figure out which seven emperors and which ones you leave out and put in and that sort of stuff, but there are some that think that. I, I personally lean, and I'm, I wouldn't lean hard, but I would lean towards these mountains and our, our kingdoms, and these kings are uh, the embodiment of these kingdoms, and that perhaps these are the world powers that have been, that you would have basically had five world powers up until this point in John's life. There was a sixth that was, and then it tells you there's one to come. You had five that were previously Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. Um, I'm missing one, I left one out somewhere in there. Greece was five. Those were, the one that was, was Rome. And there's one yet to come. And many look at this and say, this is talking about perhaps a revived Roman empire one day. That this, this may all center around Rome. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. And I, I don't know that I can say for sure. I think that's beside the point. What I can say for sure though, is this is talking about this beast who's not just a person, but is some sort of king who operates in political power. It will go on to tell you in verse, uh, verse number 11, the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth, but he's of the seven and goeth into perdition. So he's going to be a king as well. 
When we're talking about this beast, we're talking about a ruler. We're talking about someone with political clout and authority. Verse number 12, the 10 horns, which thou sawest are 10 kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet. They're future kings coming one day. This is a prophecy, but they receive power as kings one hour with the beast. They're going to rule at the same time as this, this beast or this antichrist who will also rule and be a king. These are all political leaders. Verse 13, but they have one mind and they shall give their power and strength unto the beast. What, what is this talking about? Once again, exactly what Revelation 13 had said, that there will be a coalition of sorts. There will be 10 kingdoms or kings that come together, form a federation. Their support for the Antichrist will be unanimous and they will give their power to him, their military power, their economic power, their technological power, that they will yield this over. And in essence, the Antichrist will one day rule through this coalition. This is, this is what it's saying. But this will happen in the future. Meaning this beast is not a lone ranger, is not just an individual Although the Antichrist is an individual, he also is representative of something far more nefarious and larger in a political war machine, right? In the same way that I would say Disney, and you may think Walt Disney the person, or Disney the theme parks, or Disney the movies, the company, Disney is a person and a company that kind of, they're, they're meshed with each other, right? The Antichrist or the beast is a person, but also a political war machine. They're both. When the word is used, it's talking really about both. And saying that this, what was all this 10 horns about? It's talking about a confederation that will one day take place between all of them. This is, this is why, so let me just help you understand why people are oftentimes interested in certain things. This is why people are oftentimes interested in what's happening in Europe, specifically what's happening around Rome. Uh, this would be why when the European Union was, was forming and there were these countries that were autonomous, but were uniting under a union or an umbrella in ways that we really hadn't seen prior to that, that people became very interested in that, of this coalition that is forming in Europe, right, right there around, oh, Italy's one of, one of the members of this, like people started to get real interested, right? And many thought, hey, this is going, the, U, the EU, that's gonna be what this is talking about. And of course they had eight members and they had nine members and they had 10, it was like, it's it, 10, we hit it, 10. And then it was 11, then it was 12, and they're like, oh, maybe it wasn't, you know? But <clears throat> people get interested in that and, and for good reason. This is why when people start to talk about a one world religion or a one world government, and you start to see some of the implications of these things play out, the people start to look at the news articles and what's happening in our culture and in our times, and they begin to be interested in those things. Why? Because of these prophecies. And I don't know how it all work. I don't know exactly what it will be. I don't know if it'll be Babylon, the city, if that's, that's more modern day Iraq, if this will be more Muslim in nature, if it's Rome, the city, and this is more Catholic in nature, or if it's neither, if it, I don't know, I don't know. But I know this much, it's telling you. I'm gonna bottom shelf it for you. Here is religion and politics. Religion is riding on the back of politics. Religion for a time is controlling the political entity, but they're working in tandem with each other and they are coming together to form a coalition and a power 
really unlike the world has known, and that these two are going to be blended to seduce people and to move their affection and their allegiance away from Jesus. I can tell you that much. And that shouldn't be ultra surprising. We can see the coalition of religion and politics. You can see that in, in Muslim countries, right? You can see that in the Vatican. You can see the idea of religion and politics becoming so intertwined with each other where what, what is the state and what is the religion? I'm not exactly sure these are all together. This is talking about that. And it's talking about the tools that are specifically at the disposal of trying to draw people in with power and with sexuality and with money and to get them to, to join in. But here's what it says in verse number 14. After describing these things in a sketch form, it's not overly clear, but it's enough to give you an outline. Here is the part that is preachy, okay? I'm almost done teaching. I'm about to preach at you. Verse number 14, you'll find Babylon's calamity, amongst other things, but here it is. These, the prostitute and the beast, will make war with the lamb. Now, who's the lamb in Revelation? I'm gonna ask you, class, I'm gonna ask you, you tell me, who is the lamb in Revelation? Yeah, very, very good, you remember. The lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he says unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the horse sat are the peoples and multitudes of nations and tongues and the 10 horns which thou sawest on the beast. These shall hate that woman and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Meaning there comes a tipping point where the political system and entourage that is run by the Antichrist no longer is served well by the religious system and it eats up the religious system and says, we don't need you anymore. And there will be a time where the Antichrist says, don't need any of that. I am the political and the religious. You worship me, you bow to me. And whatever religiosity, what, I don't know if it's new age, I don't know if it's something that that's, uh, has been historically around for a while, if it's something that's brand new, whatever that is, it gets swallowed up and devoured and done away with. And the beast eats the woman, basically. Verse number 17, why? Because God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now don't miss this part of the text because you can get so into the weeds and so enamored by this prophecy and what does it mean and how does it all play out, which it's my job to walk through this text verse by verse and try to help you understand it. But you get to these moments and there are big powerful, bold truths that are meant to shape us. Namely, and it's critical that you understand this, that what happens on earth is determined by heaven. When this says in verse number 17 that God puts it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast, why would he do that? So that the words of God shall be fulfilled it's telling you the way that it works, the way that it will work, the way that it does work, the way that it always uh, has worked. If you remember, there was a king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, right? An old boy that got too big for his britches who decided that he was in control of everything 
And God took Nebuchadnezzar and he put him in a lot of emotional turmoil and he took his kingdom away for seven years. And he said, Nebi, that's his nickname, you'll get your kingdom back when you understand that God rules in the kingdom of men and that while you think you're in charge, you're not really in charge. And seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar understood that reality, that God rules in the kingdom of men and that heaven is in control. And what this is communicating about this new mysterious Babylon that represents so much is that yet again, the lesson will be taught that God rules in the kingdom of men and that heaven is in control. Now, there's an encouraging note for you, I would tell you the encouraging note for you even today, not just in the future, but today, is that God rules in the kingdom of men and heaven's in control. When you turn on the news, you need to be reminded that God did not fall asleep at the wheel and that God still rules in the kingdom of men and that God is still in control, right? When you look at your grocery bill and dismayed you may be, you need to be reminded that God rules in the kingdom of men and heaven is still in control, right? When it feels like the world is falling apart around you and there are days where it feels like the world is falling apart around us, we must be reminded that God rules in the kingdom of men and that heaven's in control. That's the way it works. And that if it feels like everything's crumbling, understand that the hand of this world will fit neatly into the glove of prophecy one day that God is allowing all the dominoes to fall exactly how he wants them to fall and that he is in control even when you come to, to Revelation chapter 17 with this woman, the prostitute, and with this beast and the Antichrist, that God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. And you need to know that. And you should, you should have kind of caught that as we move through the passage, right? Because it's like this beast. And FYI, he's headed for destruction. And oh, here's this beast with all his power. And yet again, he's going to destruction. It tells you that twice. It tells you in verse 17 that God puts it in his heart to fulfill his will. And it tells you in verse number 14, and I love it, that the lamb will overcome them. That they will make war with him, but he will overcome, right? Meaning... They'll make war. The devil is real. The devil is active. The devil is insidious. The devil knows how to use political machinery to his advantage. The devil knows how to use religious machinery to his advantage. He knows how to tempt people and how to draw them in. And he's not to be trifled with, but he will one day be owned, right? But that's what it says. You get that? Like one day God's gonna dunk on him. Like he will put this to an end that eventually it all moves in this direction that the Antichrist, fresh off of defeating this woman and, and eating her, he gets too big for his britches. He thinks that he could take on King Jesus. But what's gonna happen? The lamb's gonna sneak up on him and judo chop him in his neck and put him to sleep. You say, I didn't see the judo chop. If, if it can use imagery, I can use imagery, right? You remember that. It'll hook you. That's what the text is saying. And that's good news. That's meant to give you, to back you up and give you a perspective that isn't just a prophecy of this and that and these kings and how will this work and what are those nations? Or maybe the 10 kings are Russia and China and Sweden and maybe, no, 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 it's not them. Maybe it's someone else. Forget that mess. Remember this, God rules in the kingdom of men, heaven is in control and Jesus dunks on the devil, okay? Remember that. Let that encourage you and let your takeaway from this chapter be that there is... <coughs> 
a finely tuned, very seductive play that's at hand that wants to entice you and wants to take money and sexuality and power and control and comfort and suck you into it. Your head better be on a swivel. You're not neutral. You're on a team. You're on team Jesus or you're not. But if you're on team Jesus, understand that the captain wins the day. Understand that he will, he will make all the wrongs right. Victory is his and understand that God is still in control of everything. He's still calling the shots. And those are what, as I, as I studied, and I, I'll be honest, at times beat my head against the wall trying to study through Revelation 17, and I thought to myself, there's no Sunday school teacher ever who wants to teach this chapter to somebody. And, and as I tried to work through it and, and get, the, get the finer points and try to understand it, and, and my head swam at times, I, I ultimately came back to these are the major things. This, this is what the church needs today to be encouraged to know and to move forward, to understand that there, there is, there's a war happening. Don't, don't float on the lazy river of life. Don't numb yourself with Netflix on Memorial Day weekend and do nothing. Understand that there's, there's something happening. There's spiritual realities. Get your head in the game, right? And understand that one day, the game does come to a close. We're getting to the end of Revelation and we're gonna see this game wind down. You get, it, you get your hand tipped to it here. But we'll leave it at this this morning. God's calling the shots. God rules in the kingdom of men. He knows what he's doing and he's doing it. And heaven's still in control. Amen. Amen.